Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quay. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud is generously sponsored by DigitalOcean. I would argue that every cloud platform out there biases for different things. Uh, Some bias for having every feature you could possibly want offered as a managed service at varying degrees of maturity. Others bias for, hey, we heard there's some money to be made in the cloud space. Uh, Can you give us some of it? DigitalOcean biases for neither. Uh, To me, they optimize for simplicity. I polled some friends of mine who are avid DigitalOcean supporters about why they're using it for various things, and they all said more or less the same thing. Other offerings have a bunch of shenanigans with root access and IP addresses, and DigitalOcean makes it all simple. In 60 seconds, you have root access to a Linux box with an IP. That's a direct quote, uh, albeit with profanity about other providers taken out. DigitalOcean also offers fixed price offerings. Uh, You always know what you're going to wind up paying this month, so you don't wind up having a minor heart issue when the bill comes in. Their services are also understandable without spending three months going to cloud school. You don't have to worry about going very deep to understand what you're doing. It's click button or make an API call, and you receive a cloud resource. They also include very understandable monitoring and alerting. And lastly, they're not exactly what I would call small time. Over 150,000 businesses are using them today. So go ahead and give them a try. Uh, Visit do.co slash screaming, and they'll give you a free $100 credit to try it out. That's do.co slash screaming. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for their support of Screaming in the Cloud. Hello and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. I'm joined this week by Ernesto Marquez, who's the owner and project director at Concurrency Labs, where he generally tends to spend his time helping startups launch and then grow their applications on AWS. Lately, he's been emphasizing serverless architectures, where he automates a whole bunch of things and helps customers with some aspects of the same problem I deal with, the horrifying AWS bill. But before you did all of that, Ernesto, you were a manager, both at Accenture and AWS. So first, welcome to the show. Hi, Corey. Uh, Thanks a lot for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here. And thanks for the intro as well. Um, So yes, uh, I mean, before I uh, I used to work for AWS, but before I joined AWS, I used to work for global consulting firm Accenture uh, for around 10 years, uh, mostly in Vancouver, Canada. And I used to work mainly with large telecommunications carriers in Canada, basically delivering software in a lot of areas related to the telecommunications industry, like from customer care to billing to ordering, provisioning, and, you know, a lot of, you know, systems that are part of uh, pretty much any uh, national telecommunications carrier. Uh, you know, the cool part about that, it's something something that I that I had exposure to basically systems that impact millions of people, right? Uh, telecommunication companies, of course, right? They do have, you know, millions of subscribers and they run a lot of critical systems that, you know, cannot go down. And that was something that I, uh, that I, that I enjoyed a lot, like being, uh, you know, being part of delivering uh, software in, in that type of environment. Um, eventually I, I was responsible for uh, leading the performance test practice uh, with one of our clients, 
So that basically means, you know, running all these, you know, validations and inducing load on systems before any type of feature goes live, right? To make sure that basically things don't crash, right? Once uh, they go live, right? In production. So, so I was responsible for that. And that's, that was basically my last role before uh, I decided uh, to, to join or to apply for AWS in Vancouver. That was back in 2000, 2013, uh, Amazon expanded into Canada and into Vancouver specifically. So they did open a development office in Vancouver for many areas of Amazon, like for the e-commerce side and also for, for AWS. So you wind up joining Amazon in Vancouver. And then the burning question I'm sure most of our listeners are going to have, I know that I do, what product can we blame you for? <laughs> so I was part of the Simple Workflow uh, team in Vancouver. At uh, that time, you know, there was a development, a development uh, team in Seattle, and we started to build a development team in Canada as well. Uh, but yes, that was mainly the Simple Workflow uh, product, and I was also involved with uh, CloudWatch, this feature called CloudWatch Actions, which uh, you might be familiar with it. It's basically... Um, you know, a way to react to specific alarms in CloudWatch, right? So you configure, let's say, an EC2 instance or an alarm in an EC2 instance so such that when the CPU utilization goes beyond, let's say, 60% or, you know, whatever percentage, you can do things in response to that alarm. So, you know, there are things like stopping an instance or rebooting the instance or terminating it or, you know, things like that. So I was, um, I was uh, responsible for features related to the CloudWatch actions uh, as well. And as a software development manager, you're also responsible for operating services. So you're part of, you know, the whole, you know, escalation chain whenever something goes wrong. And I was part of that. I was involved in many operational, uh, you know, resolutions. Uh, as part of the simple workflow team and also as part of a CloudWatch, CloudWatch actions. That was probably one of the areas where I learned uh, the most, really, when it comes to how Amazon does things, like how Amazon operates their services, how they keep the lights on. Fairly well, generally speaking. Absolutely, yes. Like, really, the, the level of discipline and processes and basically, uh, you know, the willingness to recognize when something is not, you know, right. And, you know, just doing the right thing to fix any type of issues. Uh, it is really outstanding. And that's something that, that really changed, uh, the way I see how a system should be operated. And a lot of those principles are, uh, transferable to, you know, like a small company that's running, you know, a small system or to like a large enterprise that is running, you know, a multi-million dollar type of application. So, that was something that I really, uh, I would say I enjoyed to learn that. It's also very challenging to be part of that type of environment that is, that is very demanding, right? In terms of the high standards when it comes to, you know, to maintaining like operational excellence. Yes. One thing I find interesting is that after you left AWS, you became a independent consultant. I do the same thing. But whereas I focused on, instead of being, uh, broad in AWS across a very specific client niche, as you have, I focused on solving a very specific problem that then tended to map to 
AWS customers of all sizes. It's there's not nothing right or wrong about either approach. I'm just curious about how you wind up viewing your work in that context. Yeah, so you're right. There are two di- two different approaches, right? I think in general, the important thing is to specialize on something very specific within the AWS uh, ecosystem. With over 120 services, if someone claims they're an expert in, in all of AWS, they're lying. No one has that all locked in their head. No, absolutely not. I mean, there are a number of principles that you need to apply when you design an architecture. There are a number of what I call foundational services that you must know, right? Those are the must-haves, right? Like the S3, CC2s, all that type of stuff. You know, yes, there is a foundation. But then somebody who says that, you know, they know every single service, I mean, that's just not possible. So the important thing, in my opinion, is to really focus on on one area, either a technology uh, within AWS uh, or, uh, in my particular case, I I focus on a, on a particular segment, right, on a particular market. And in this case, I work with typically small to medium startups. Um, the way I segment my, my market is basically those companies that spend between $5,000 and $25,000 a month in AWS spent. So that covers, uh, you know, a certain rate, a very specific range of, of companies. And, you know, the thing, I arrived at this number and uh, this market just basically by talking to people. So when I was starting my own practice and I just basically spent a lot of time uh, reaching out to people uh, everywhere People I knew, people I didn't know, and you know, many of them were uh, generous enough to give me, you know, half an hour of their time and you know, tell me about their specific problems. And you know, I arrived at that conclusion, right? For my particular uh, goals and my particular uh, case, I decided that uh, that that was a market that, that that I wanted to that I wanted to tackle, right? And you know, so far, uh, that's something that I have that I have enjoyed a lot. I, I do enjoy working with these types of companies. Um, something I really like about it is that I get to talk to the decision makers uh, right away. So typically within this segment, right, uh, I end up talking to, you know, the CEO, technical founder type of person, right, or the CTO uh, type of person. And, you know, we have a conversation, we talk about, you know, the different needs, I come back with a proposal and we have, we make a decision, right? Uh, or they make a decision uh, right away. So, you know, basically the sales cycle is very, is very efficient in that case. And that's something that I enjoy, right? Uh, and not only that, any, not only the sales cycle, but the delivery cycle as well, right? I get to talk to decision makers. If something needs to be done, it gets, the decision gets made, uh, you know, fast. So, that's something that I that I enjoy, right? Uh, I get to make an impact uh, on businesses for you know that impact you know you know a, a significant number of people, and also that impact substantially you know the the business owners and their customers. So I do I, I, I do enjoy uh, working in that type of environment. It definitely seems like it has a certain I guess panache to it. What I find interesting and first brought you to my attention is you wound up having a fascinating article, and I'll throw a link to it in the show notes, on effectively how to wind up figuring out whether an AWS service is right for you. And you had something in there that I guess I'm going to call the quadrant of doom, where you wind up discussing a variety of services in a multi-cloud context versus basically on an axis of how easy it is to migrate off of them. I'm oversimplifying to a point. But that 
effectively is something I hadn't really seen before as we have these ongoing debates about, oh, should I prepare to go multi-cloud? My default response to that is generally, no, go all in. And instead, if you need to migrate later, deal with it then. You take a more nuanced view. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when you're designing a cloud architecture, you know, there are a number of factors that you have to consider. So, you know, in many cases, you know, I'm a technical guy. I, you know, it's kind of in my nature to to try to jump in to, you know, start to think about things in technical terms, right? And 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 particular AWS services and things like that. But that's that's something that, you know, you have to be it has to be decided in a careful way before you get there. So you really have to understand before you do any of that, you really have to understand the business that is behind those systems, right? So any system that you design exists for one reason and one reason only, which is to support a business, right? So that's kind of like the context that I try to I try to bring into the whole the whole process. So, you know, at some point you're going to, you know, think about the services that you're going to use. And then the important thing is you have to think about all the different uh, factors, all the different features, all the different things that are associated to that particular service and make sure that they are right for that particular implementation. So one of the things, and you know, you're referring to this, uh, this, this diagram, right? The quadrants of doom. I, I don't <laughs> like the name. <laughs> well, anything else, uh, you have to be careful. That it might be magic, um, I don't know, magic axis of doom or something, because I'm sure the word magic, quadrant, and probably doom are still uh, trademarks of Gartner. Yes. Okay. So it's essentially, let's call it a little, uh, you know, X, Y axis chart. Let's take a look at something that is very important when it comes to using a particular service, which is the vendor lock-in. A lot of AWS customers uh, are concerned about vendor lock-in. And, you know, justifiably so, right? You know, you're moving your application to this cloud provider and, you know, you want to know, right, how difficult it will be in the future, right, to move somewhere else, right? If for whatever reason you need to, you need to move. So that's an important thing to consider. And yes, a lot of, a lot of customers uh, are concerned about that. Um, they see that there are a lot of cool features, or a lot of cool products in AWS that result in, you know, a heavy type of vendor lock-in. Uh, so that's why I've been thinking about that. Um, so from, a, from an application owner point of view, there are probably more variables, but there are two that I, that, that I find um, that come up regularly, which is my code and design. So how much changes do I need to make in my application if I want to migrate out of AWS? So, so those, are, those are two factors. And there are services you know, and they, they live in different parts of this like spectrum uh, when it comes to complexity. So, for example, there are services where it's going to be relatively easy to, to, to migrate out of AWS. Like there's basically nothing that you need to change in your code or, you know, nothing you need to change in your design. But there are services where, you know, you potentially need to rewrite the whole application if you want to move out of AWS. So it's important to understand that. Right. And I mean, there are some examples uh, if, uh, you know, I can mention some examples of services where, you know, it's relatively easy to move in and out. So, for example, RDS. RDS, I find that that's a service that is that's that one's easy to move out of AWS. You know, you're using MySQL or SQL Server, or, you know, whatever uh, 
database engine that is available, you know, that's not a big deal, right, for your application. You know, you don't need to change a lot of, you know, code. You just basically need to change some config files and you need to migrate your data out of AWS. I mean, that's that, that could be a considerable task. But from your code perspective, you don't need to change much. But then there are other services, for example, Lambda, which, I mean, I love Lambda. I use it all the time. Uh, it's one of my favorite services. But that's a service that if at some point you want to migrate out of AWS, you're going to have to redesign a lot of stuff and you're going to have to rewrite a lot of code, uh, most likely. So, so you basically need to be aware of those, uh, you know, what it would mean in the future, right? If you, if you want to, uh, you know, to move out of AWS potentially. Absolutely. And that's, that's part of the challenge, I think, that people wind up missing at times is there's a question of what, what is the eventuality you're aiming at here? Is it if you want to be able to move strategically down the road, if a provider does something you don't like? Well, spoiler, everyone's going to do something that you don't like sooner or later. Are you doing this because you think it's a best practice? Well, maybe that makes sense for certain workloads, but for others, it slows you down because you're not able to build on top of highly differentiated services in some cases. Not every workload needs that as a design objective. Not every, not, doesn't make sense for an awful lot of stuff. If it's life sustaining, yeah, by all means, go for that. If it's something that just ties back to, well, we, we read it in Gartner and we, it's very important that our nonsense Twitter for pets service be up even when AWS is broken and on fire. Well, maybe that's not necessary. Maybe it's really expensive. Maybe the internet is better if your crappy service is down for a few hours. I mean, there's a lot of different things that tie into this. Yes, that's, that's, that's correct. But the important thing is to know in advance, right? To make an informed decision, right? As, as you enter AWS, at least you know, okay, this is, this is what I signed up for and, and I'm okay with it, right? Um, you know, the worst thing that can happen is really to get a, you know, to be surprised by it, right? Like, further down the road if, you know, if you decide to, to move out of AWS. So that's an important thing. Now, uh, so that's related to vendor lock-in. Uh, there are a number of other factors too, right, that you have to consider uh, before choosing a particular service. And even if it's a service that it's, you know, that you're familiar with, right? So let's say, you know, EC2 or Lambda, right? Very popular services that a lot of people are familiar with. You still need to evaluate that particular service in a lot of different areas and make sure that it's, it, that is going to support your particular business case. Uh, so I recommend to do this process like for every service that you include in your architecture, even if it's a service that you are entirely familiar with, because again, you have to evaluate the service within the context of a particular business case. So, you know, there are things like, um, you know, the available regions, for example, right? Not all services are available in all regions. There are uh, areas related to performance and scalability, like service limits, for example. You know, there is a number, there are a number of service limits in AWS. Uh, some of them are, you can increase them uh, if you submit a, a support request, but some of them you cannot, right? So you have to be aware of those service limits as well. Again, as they relate to that particular business case. And, you know, that's, those are some examples, right? Uh, the, the scaling, right? How does scaling work in this, in this service? Is it done automatically for me? Is it done, you know, do I have to explicitly configure it somewhere or is, is it going to be difficult to 
provide some sort of automated scaling mechanism. So those are things that you also need to be to be aware of, right? So um, what are the failure scenarios, right? Like how how what can go wrong, right? And if something goes wrong, how is it going to be remediated, right? So those are things that also it's just important to go through those uh, through those uh, scenarios again, even if it's a service that uh, that you're familiar with, because again, it, de- it really depends on that particular uh, business case, and and that makes it more uh, uh, more relevant. So there are a number of factors, right? There's there's of course authentication, security. There's like encryption addressed or not, those type of things, right? Um, there are there's also one area that I really like. Uh, about AWS, like in the past two years, I think AWS has uh, really developed this uh, concept of like built-in, what I call built-in integrations, right? So, so now you see there's a big ecosystem of services that integrate with each other, right, uh, very easily. Uh, so, for example, a good example of that is CloudWatch events, right? You can automate, you know. Uh, you can basically detect all these events that can happen in your AWS resources, and you can trigger uh, responses, right, um, for those events. So those are built-in integrations, right, that are very useful. Uh, Lambda itself, right, as a, as a service, it has a lot of very cool integrations with a number of services out there. So that also makes, you know, uh, it increases the potential, right, for, for, for a number of use cases. It simplifies in many ways uh, how you out- automate certain processes. So those are things as well that are important to consider uh, when evaluating a particular a particular service, right? What are the built-in integrations that are out there? Uh, there is the monitoring as well, right? That is, that's an important part. So what metrics are available like for that particular uh, service? So for example, uh, EC2, uh, yes, it has a number of very useful metrics, but CloudWatch does not publish memory metrics. So it might be the case that it's necessary that you that you monitor memory. And, you know, you have to be aware there are ways around that. You can still get memory metrics if you use, like, the Collect the plugin. But, you know, you just have to be aware of all the different things that need to be in place, right, in order for you to use a particular service in an optimal way. And, again, I, I, I'm just trying um, to emphasize this, which is as it relates to a particular to a particular business case, right? So, so yeah, so that's uh, basically. Uh, I think I expanded right a, a bit on on all the different areas that that I find uh, that I find relevant uh, when it comes to choosing a particular service. No, and I think you're largely right on this. So it feels to me, and this is overwhelmingly cynical, that the reason a lot of companies are pushing for a multi-cloud narrative is because as even as an Amazon partner or a partner with any of these large cloud providers, if you're all in on a particular provider, you probably don't need too many partners to help you out. Whereas if you're disambiguating between multiple providers, there's much more of a story there. So to that end, I'm not an Amazon partner. Uh, What's your take on the entire program? Well, I think being an Amazon partner, I think it does have some advantages, uh, meaning that you're part of the partner ecosystem, uh, you know, there is a, you know, there's a partner portal, you have access to a number of resources, uh, you have, you basically gain visibility as well. Like I know that uh, many, uh, you know, potential customers, they do search in the partner network. 
uh, for, you know, specific skills and, you know, areas of specialization and all that type of stuff. So, like, it does gain visibility. It does help, I believe, the, the, the business uh, for a particular partner. So basically, I mean, those are uh, what I see as, you know, the main the main uh, advantages. Now, is it worth the process? I think, I think it is, right? It does uh, also, you know, help with gaining, uh, you know, a certain degree of credibility, uh, you know, when you get, you know, the Amazon partner batch, right? Uh, so, so I do believe uh, there are advantages, right, to becoming a partner. Uh, now, that being said, um, is it essential to become an AWS partner in order to have a successful business practice that is related to AWS? Uh, maybe not. Right. Maybe maybe that's something that could be, uh, you know, could be debatable. So that's kind of like my you know, high level answer to that. <laughs> and I agree with you. I agree with what you're saying. It's there's also the challenge, of course, is that the way AWS is built, it's almost a microservices organization comprised of tiny startups that are all building products that wind up some of which see the light of day, some of which don't. It feels like Amazon's product strategy is yes. And as a result of that, we're very often in a scenario where a lot of partners as they exist today will not likely have viable businesses in three to five years where the native platform provider starts to offer a whole bunch of different things that until now you need to go with a third party for. A great example of this in an area near and dear to my heart is understanding the bill. I feel like on some level, if you're coming at this from a perspective of, uh, I guess, aiming at explaining people's Amazon's bills to them in return for a percentage of the bill, that's an enormous pile of money for something that, let's be honest here, Amazon is failing its customers by not providing natively. I don't see that that gap is going to continue to exist in perpetuity. Amazon does listen to its customers, regardless of what other faults you can attribute to them. And I think if that's your entire business story, there isn't a great narrative there. The way that that starts to work is if you start trying to, to say, okay, we're going to categorize all of your cloud providers in the same way and give you a single pane of glass from an economic point of view, that tends to be a little bit more differentiated and is probably not as susceptible to disruption from the underlying provider. But that's my personal hobby horse. I don't necessarily know that I'm right, and I don't necessarily know that other people will agree with me. In fact, I know for a fact some people disagree vehemently. <laughs> I see. Um, so basically it comes down to as you know, as a service provider or as a technology provider, are you going to compete against Amazon, right? And that's a very scary question, right? Um, I think from my point of view, and, and many people would agree with that, right? So how can you compete with Amazon? Uh, in my view, I think there are certain areas where it is feasible to compete against Amazon. There are areas where I think it's a losing proposition to compete against Amazon. So let me start with those. Uh, I think that competing on cost, availability, scalability, and security, if you're going to you know, take one of those areas and try to compete against Amazon, uh, you're probably going to lose, right? Uh, you probably don't have the army of talented engineers that Amazon has in order to ensure availability. You probably don't have you know, all the experience and all the data that Amazon gathers, right, to improve the operational procedures and make sure that availability is, you know, top notch. Same thing with scalability, right? You probably don't have the resources, right, to provide all these, you know, data centers and scalability tools, right, that, that Amazon can provide. When it comes to security, you know, 
it's also going to be very difficult, right? Security is like pro- is the top priority at Amazon. They have, you know, extremely talented and experienced engineers, right? That you know make security, you know, the top priority, and they specialize. You know, that's what they do. It's very going to be very difficult, right? Amazon also has exposure, right? As a very visible technology out there, right? It has exposure to a lot of security-related, uh, uh, you know, topics and and data. So it's very hard as well that, you know, that you're going to be successful, right, if you compete against, uh, you know, insecurity against Amazon. So those are areas that I think, you know, I wouldn't focus on those. However, I believe there are some areas that where people can compete against Amazon. And so basically it comes down to like a little bit of understanding how, you know, how Amazon grows, right? Uh, you know, there is this concept of, you know, the the, the flywheel of, of, of growth, right? That, uh, you know, if you read, uh, there's a lot of information out there uh, around that. So basically it comes down to expanding the selection of products. You know, that's something that, you know, Amazon as an e-commerce uh, store has, you know, grown based on that principle, right? The more selection there is, you know, the more customers come to your store and it just kind of creates a, a you know, a virtuous cycle, right, of growth. And, you know, the same principle is applied to AWS, right? There are just a number of new products announced all the time, right? There's a lot of innovation happening, right? The, the pace of innovation just hasn't stopped. It has actually increased. So the thing is, there is all this, you know, all this machine, all this flywheel, right, of selection, but which is great for customers, right? But the thing is that everything comes at a cost. So I believe that when, as an organization, you focused on adding more things, more products, more features, there are certain things that are going to suffer. And I believe that user experience is one that I believe is lacking in some areas in in AWS specifically. So, you know, it comes down to having a friendly, a user-friendly way of interacting with the different services. Uh, if you go to the AWS console, you're going to see that there are many products out there, in my opinion, that, you know, they're just not that user-friendly, right? It's, you know, it's not easy to, you know, to sometimes understand the, uh, you know, the GUI, like, it does. there's no consistent user experience. So there are a number of things that just basically, uh, I think, affect, uh, you know, the, the, the user experience. So I think that's probably one area um, which comes down really to simplifying AWS. So if, as a partner, you are building either a service or a product that focuses on simplifying AWS for your users, I think that's an area where you can actually succeed, where you can actually um, you know, compete against Amazon. Now, uh, there are other areas where I think you can also compete. And like I mentioned before, uh, you know, Amazon expands in a horizontal way, right? It adds a lot of products, it adds a lot of features, but I don't believe that necessarily grows in a vertical way as fast as it does on a horizontal way. Like meaning, you know, there's a new product, you know, like, you know, there are new products all the time, you know, on day one, you know that that product is going to be secure, you know it's going to scale, you know it's going to be available. That's great. And you, you're going to have something useful. But the thing is that it's not going to have a lot of features. And sometimes 
you can actually compete on basically adding more functionality to those type of to those types of services. And I believe that uh, see how different products evolve. You know, they they eventually add features. They eventually, I mean, they do listen to customers and they do add features. But I don't think that it happens at the same pace as you know new products. Uh, you know, the way new products are added. So that's probably one area as well where, uh, you know, it might be a success story, you know, there to basically, you know, if you have to compete against Amazon, maybe that's one area as well, right? Just basically pick something very specific and just make it, you know, make it perfect for your users. And that could be also one area where I believe uh, it's possible to, uh, to compete. There's another one, there's another area which I believe it's, Probably the most difficult one, uh, I mean, but it's still feasible, right? Like in, in this category of areas where you could actually compete against Amazon, it's probably the most difficult one to, uh, to, get, to get it right. And I'm talking about performance. Amazon, like I mentioned, you know, security, availability, scalability, that's great. But when it comes to performance, I've actually seen in some services that performance could be improved. And, you know, in some cases, there are products that can offer, um, you know, very good performance and even better performance compared to Amazon. Maybe not by a lot, but to a degree where it's noticeable to customers. And, you know, I've done a few benchmarks on, you know, a few tools out there in the market that do offer better performance. Now, the thing is, uh, that's a difficult one to do, right? You need to make sure that you have a very talented engineering team, right? Uh, if you have that, right, if you have the technical skills, if you have, you know, very deep expertise in one particular area, right, that is related to performance and, you know, you have some solution, some, you know, some, uh, then it's possible, right, to improve or to offer something that delivers better performance uh, to customers. But like I said, that is a difficult one to do, right? So those are the areas where I think it's possible for some you know, partners to, you know, to, to compete and to survive and even thrive in the long term in a world where you're right, uh, Amazon is going to become your competitor sooner or later. Right. I went in a bit of a different direction where I figured the one market Amazon is never going to get into on purpose is self-mockery. So the newsletter being sarcastic and taking swipes at them from time to time is something that feels like it's going to be something that continues to add value down the road. Slightly more seriously, they're very excited about how many feature enhancements they're releasing and how it's constantly growing all the time. But if you follow that to its logical conclusion, you'll wind up with someone whose full-time job 24-7 is to talk about the things that they're releasing. And that's not sustainable. People can't keep this stuff straight. So there's always going to be, a, to some extent, a market for summarizing the things that matter coming out of AWS. And there are, there are a bunch of cottage industries like that. I mean, is this going to turn into a business for 500 people? Probably not. But it does wind up serving as a somewhat interesting model for individual types of I guess, for niche markets, for independent consultants like I am. I'm not, I would be a little more worried if I had hired a staff of 400 people whose full-time job it was to track these things, to provide services around AWS, just because it's difficult to predict what Amazon is going to do next. Yes, I do. I do agree with that. I mean, and, you know, I think that's aligned with, 
you know, this uh, idea that you basically take a niche, right? You take a very specific area that is related to AWS. Um, I was talking more about technologies, right? But but you're right. I mean, uh, in, in this particular case, right, just basically keeping track of all the different things that are announced by AWS, right? And just putting them into the right context and reaching the right audience and things like that. That's a very va- valuable thing for a lot of people. So yes, I think uh, I think you're right. That is a that is a very good niche to focus on. Well, we're going to find out one way or another. <laughs> so, what have you been working on lately? Where can people go to see examples of your work? Yes. So, well, I have a uh, there's my my website concurrencylabs.com. I'll throw a link to that in the show notes. Yep. Uh, I mean, I do publish articles regularly. You know, there is one thing that uh, there's there's one project that I've been working on, uh, which is called Miserbot. Uh, this is a Slack chatbot that basically monitors your AWS cost. So uh, one of the problems I've seen uh, when, you know, talking to customers is a lot of them, they're really scared about cost. And they're particularly scared of getting a bad AWS billing surprise, you know, um, you know, meaning that, you know, one month you get thousand, you know, like $10,000 of, you know, unexpected cost and things like that, right? For at least for the, the, the customers I work with, it is a real thing and it does happen and I've seen it happen. But the thing is that monitoring AWS cost is not as, I mean, it's not as simple. It's kind of a tedious task, to be honest. Uh, there are some tools out there that can that, that can help you with it. I mean, you can go to Cost Explorer, right, in the AWS console, and you know you get some nice graphs and you can see how much you're spending. That's cool. But do you really want to do that every day and go to the console every day to see how you're doing with your AWS spend? Probably not, right? That wouldn't be a very good use of your team's time. So, so that's one that's one alternative out there. Then you have building alerts, and you know building alerts. They're good. You know, you can set up as many as you want. You know, you get an email or, you know, a message in your mobile phone. You know, whenever you spend more than $500 or 1000 or 5 or 10 20 whatever the number is, um, that's cool. But that only tells you when something bad already happened, right? So, and again, it also depends on you proactively configuring all those alerts. And they don't tell you much. They just told they just tell you that you know you exceeded a particular threshold, but they don't tell you more. So that's another option out there. Then there are a number of tools too. Some of them are very sophisticated and they're very cool tools with very nice dashboards and you know they allow you to keep track of you know multiple accounts, multiple users, and multiple things. And they're awesome tools. But some of them, uh, you know, they start at a few hundred or even thousands of dollars a month. Right. Uh, If you want to take advantage of that type of monitoring and, you know, that works for, you know, a lot of customers of AWS and that's cool. But that doesn't necessarily work for, you know, segment uh, that I I, that I work with people. I, you know, I've been hearing their concerns. So that's why I created this uh, this chatbot. So basically what it does is that it gets your cost and usage reports from Amazon, and it analyzes those reports on a regular basis, like basically as soon as AWS publishes an aid, uh, cost and usage report in your account, the bot takes that information, it analyzes it, and it sends you a notification to your Slack channel. So it tells you, so far, your cost accumulated cost for the month is X. 
And then you can drill down, right? Uh, you, you don't, it doesn't only tell you your current cost. You can actually drill down and get some additional information, like such as uh, your top services, right? Uh, it shows you some graphs as well. Uh, it can also show you the usage types because, you know, sometimes uh, you might get that, you know, S3, I'm spending a lot of money on S3, but what exactly on S3, right? Could be the storage type, could be API calls, you know, it could be a number of things. So it also shows you the usage types. And there's one feature as well. It shows you the actual resources that are incurring uh, the most uh, cost for you, right? So basically a particular instance EC2 instance, a particular S3 bucket. So those types of things. That's actually something that you don't get in Cost Explorer. Uh, in Cost Explorer, you only get usage types and you get services, but you don't get the specific resources. So that's what the bot does, right? It just gives you, on a regular basis, it tells you how much money you're spending. So basically, there's no surprises there. And you can also configure the bot if you want notifications you know, uh, once per day or you know, as soon as a new report arrives, which is like three times per day, or weekly, Notification. So you know whatever your uh, your preference is, you can actually get notified. So I find you know this bot to it helps me a lot uh, to basically keep track of my own cost uh, in AWS. I've been able to stop some you know potentially bad surprises uh, for me and for some of my clients. Um, and you know it's I, I find it like a lightweight alternative to many of these tools, and it really at least for me and for many of my, my clients, it does solve that main problem, which is to avoid AWS surprises. And that's the biggest challenge is that there's, especially in a build context, there's definitely an area of shock that winds up hitting these things. It's one of those unpleasant surprise moments that just doesn't tend to work very well. So I think that there's definitely opportunity in this space. I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been fantastic hearing a little bit more about how you think about these things, where you come from, what you're doing, where you're going. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure, Corey. I do appreciate the opportunity to being part of this podcast. So thanks a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much. This has been Ernesto Marquez. I'm Corey Quinn. And this is Screaming in the Cloud. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingInTheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold.